The words that I'd like to direct your attention to are found once again, or once again, what am I saying? For the first time, in a while at least, uh, to the book of Job. We're in a new series now. You can uh, Verbal habits and patterns, right? Book of Job, please turn to Job. Uh, it's right, um, right before the book of Psalms. Psalms is pretty easy to find. get the this book let me begin with a word of prayer Lord I love Paul's declaration in 2nd Corinthians 12 because it gives me comfort that when we are weak you're strong and Lord that you are not dependent upon the wisdom Uh, the eloquence, the strength of men to accomplish your purposes. And yet, uh, in fact, Lord, as as it says, it's in our weakness that you are most exalted. Lord, that comforts us as a body of believers. We we know our weakness in so many different ways. Uh, We're we're not what we want to be mentally or physically. Certainly not what we want to be spiritually. And that's why we come to your word, because we know we need help. We know we need to be strengthened and prepared. And so we pray that you would use even this this overview of the book of Job to be a a comfort and encouragement, to to lift our eyes off the insignificant things of this world and to to fix them upon you and your transcendent glory. And, And use my efforts... Lord, to bring about spiritual benefit for the sake of the congregation. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you, if you've ever visited our house, have probably noted on the drive uh, right next to our house four giant oak trees out in the middle of the wheat field, our wheat field that's just to the east side of our home. Well, on Monday we discovered that that, that, that one of those Oak trees uh, is no more. Uh, it got taken down in the midst of the storm that we had earlier this week. And we, as a family, were actually a bit emotional at the discovery uh, because we, we figured these would be monoliths um, on the, this piece of property. They have been for generations, and we figured they would be for generations to come. And, and something's lost when something so majestic uh, is taken out. From the outside, all the trees appeared healthy, including this one. But the tree fell, as we could examine it, because in reality, it was actually beginning to rot on the inside. And so when the storm hit, it exposed the, the, the true weakness of the tree. It looked good on the outside, but was actually spiritually or actually weak. And the same could be said of Christians, spiritually speaking. That during the sunny days, when things are going well, uh, they can look like they're doing tremendously, like they're spiritually strong, wise. Um, and yet, when the trials come, when the, the storms come against their faith, it proves how weak they actually are. And I think all of us will have our faith tested. We will. Um, we know this from Scripture. James chapter 1, but also 
The Apostle Peter writes that we should rejoice in these trials because even though they grieve us by, very, by these various trials, they test the genuineness of our faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, even though it's tested by fire, so that we may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So our faith is going to be tested. And one of the best ways to prepare for these tests of our faith is to immerse ourselves in a study of the book of Job. And even in an overview, the book can give insight into how to prepare for such spiritual storms. And that's what my aim is this morning, just to provide an overview of the book so that we would uh, be prepared to understand what it's saying and ultimately understand what it's communicating that we would be able to endure in the storms that we will face in the future. And a good overview usually seeks to answer just some basic questions, uh, such as who, what, where, when, why, how. And those are actually the questions that are going to guide uh, this overview this morning. Let's start with the, the question of, of who. Who wrote the book of Job? Who's the author? Well, there's no way to know for certain, with certainty, because it's not stated. Um, and a number of different people have been suggested. Uh, Job is a likely option. Uh, other options uh, have included Solomon, because there's multiple parallels in the book of Job with uh, what Solomon's written in Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs and Proverbs. Other people have suggested that Moses or even Ezra wrote it. But I think the most likely suggestion is Job's fourth friend who we're introduced to in the middle of the book in chapter 32 his friend Elihu. I think Elihu is probably the most likely author. And here are some of the reasons I think he authored the book. First of all, other than Job, he's the only one that actually receives a special introduction, uh, an explanation of his background. Um, and in the book, he appears to take on the role of a prophet, right? One who's divinely inspired, which would naturally then make sense that he would be the one to write a piece of scripture. Also, unlike his other three friends, uh, Job doesn't refute him. And even immediately after Elihu presents his case against Job, and what, some of the things he was bothered by with what, what had been said, um, God actually doesn't refute him. Um, even though God rebukes Job and his three friends, Elihu is passed over. As a prophet, again, it makes sense that he would be the author of Scripture. A third reason is that, uh, remarkably, Elihu is actually an, a relative of Abraham. And we know this because it says in Job 32.2 that Elihu is the son of Barakel, the Buzzite of the family of Ram. Now, Buzz, we know from Genesis 22.21, um, is the nephew of Abraham. It's actually Nahor's son. And so is Uz, who most likely the land of Uz, which is where Job takes place, uh, was probably named after Nahor's son as well. So he's, he's, some, there's some, he's a relative of Abraham uh, of one degree or another. And this connection with Abraham is important because it would also then connect uh, Elihu with God's covenant people, who all, who, through whom all the people would, on earth would be blessed. 
And so if Elihu is indeed the author of the book of Job, this would uh, correspond to the dating of the book to be around 2000 B.C. This brings us to the next question of when. When was Job written? I would suggest that it is written around 2000 B.C. That's approximately the time of the patriarchs. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Uh, those are the four major patriarchs, which, by the way, if some of you get emails from me from my Gmail account. It's patriarch4 at gmail.com. You might wonder, why is he calling himself a patriarch? Where does that come from? Well, it comes from the fourth patriarch, Joseph. It's my first name. So it's not because I'm, you know, some chauvinist or some reason. It has to do with, there's biblical reasons for it. But anyhow, uh, Job was written around the time of the patriarchs. Um, and uh, this would correspond with the age of Job. Job, we, we can ascertain from the text, lived to be approximately 200 years old. Well, that's very similar to the time of uh, how old many of the patriarchs lived. Very similar. Also, the way Job's wealth is calculated. It's calculated not in terms of weight, like shekels, for instance, um, or in uh, precious metals. His, his wealth is calculated in terms of livestock. Well, this is also how the patriarchs wealth was also calculated. So it would correspond to that period of time. Also, remarkably, there's no mention of any of the covenants, which given the, the prominence of the covenants within Scripture, the absence of the of mention would make sense if it was written earlier than uh, the Mosaic covenant. Uh, that was, that, again, corresponding to the time of the patriarchs. No mentions made of the Abrahamic or Mosaic covenant. Also, the divine name Shaddai is uh, it's translated God Almighty. Um, it's an early name for God, one of his early titles. It's used primarily early in Scripture. Uh, in fact, in the book of Job, that title for God uh, occurs 31 times. By far, the majority of times it actually occurs in Scripture. And this, again, is a title that is primarily associated with the patriarchs. And finally, the geographical names used in the book are only mentioned in Genesis during this very time period. So some of the names, the Sabaeans, Tima, Eliphaz. Eliphaz is uh, a town named after one of Esau's sons, actually. And, of course, the land of Uz are all mentioned in the book of Genesis. So there are many evidences that this book parallels the events or the time period of the latter portion of Genesis. So it's probably in one of, you know, the time of Joseph around there would be what I would guess. And this brings us to the question of where the events of Job take place. We know from Job 1.1 that it tells us that they take place in the land of Uz. Uz was a large territory east of the Jordan River uh, in the, the land of the Edomites. In fact, Lamentations 4.21, uh, in that verse, Uz is actually referred to as the same territory as Edom. So it was a, a, uh, they were synonyms of the same area. So this was southeast of the Dead Sea. Also, Job's friend Eliphaz is called a Temanite. Teman, we know from history, was an Edomite city also. So it, it, it's just, uh, again, southeast of the Dead Sea is where the land of Uz would be. 
brings to the next question of how is the book structured? The question of how. Um, I've presented to you on the, the slide uh, a few different outlines. One's a technical outline, and that's the outline I'll follow this morning and which will guide us as we look at this book in the future. Um, but there's also homiletical outlines. I really like Steve Lawson's, the prologue, the dialogues, the monologues, and then the epilogue uh, to break down the book of Job. So these are really simple, easy ways to remember the book of Job. Um, but I'm going to follow the more technical outline just for clarity. Let's look um, at the first part of that outline, the trial in heaven, to start us off. After introducing us to Job, the, the book begins actually with God inviting uh, Satan into his presence and pointing out uh, Job and essentially inviting Satan to test the genuineness of Job's faith. We'll look at that next week. And Satan suggests that, well, the only reason Job worships you, God, is because you bless him with all these things. If you take away all these blessings, he will not worship you anymore. In fact, he'll curse you. There's no such thing, Satan assumes, as a true worshiper because people only worship God as a means to an end. You take away that end, which is not you, and they'll stop worshiping you. That's Satan's assumption. So if Job's stripped of these blessings, what will happen? Well, Job passes this test with flying colors. Even at the, after the exhortation of his wife to curse God and die, he refuses to do so. And so he proves that he does, in fact, worship God. And this, this trial in heaven is what leads to a second trial on earth. On account of Job's suffering... His three friends assume that he must have done something horribly wrong. Because why would all these things happen to an individual unless God is behind it? So in this earthly trial, Job's righteousness is what's put on trial. And, and a link between the trials on earth and the trial in heaven is, is in this phrase, hold fast to your integrity. Would Job hold fast to his integrity? Satan questioned. Well, he did. But then now the question is, Job, by his three friends, they want to know, Job, will you hold fast to your integrity? Or will you admit that you've had some secret sin, which is why all this discipline is coming upon you? And of course, throughout the book, Job continues to hold fast to his integrity, which really makes his three friends upset because they're convinced he must have done something wrong. And then the three friends that we're introduced to in this section of the book, The Trial on Earth, are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And their basic worldview could be summarized as follows. Eliphaz tends to speak as a theologian. Um, he relies heavily upon observations from history as well. And, and he says many right things about God, but he's clearly wrong in regard to Job. Bildad speaks as one who relies upon science or just observation of the natural world. You can think of him as a, a sort of scientist, uh, relies upon empirical data to defend his argument. And then Zophar, he's the most philosophical, but he's also the most rigid. He's the most cutting of all the friends in his accusations. And, and they have three cycles of deliberations that they bring against Job. Uh, three different cycles of accusations. And in each cycle, 
each friend will give their counsel on what they think Job needs to do or what must have gone wrong or what Job needs to recognize regarding God. And then Job will respond. So one friend will go and Job will respond. Then another friend will go and then Job will respond. And then another friend will go and Job will respond. And those, there are three cycles of those patterns. And um, in each of those cycles, th- th- they actually parallel uh, general approaches to philosophy. Philosophy, of course, is the love of wisdom. So let me try and explain that real quick. And I'll draw this out as we look at Job in the future. In the first cycle of the three deliberate, the fr- deliberations by the three friends, the first cycle you could describe as a pre-modern uh, approach to philosophy. That is, the friends assume that there is such a thing as God, that he's knowable and his will can be known. And that, that the basis of all ethics is found in God himself. They make that assumption and all of their arguments are based upon it. Then in the second cycle, though, they, they try a different approach and they begin to make arguments based upon observation from the world around this the world around them, based upon their senses, what we can see with our senses, sight, hearing, feeling, right? Empirical data. Well, this is essentially modern philosophy. Modernism comes from the uh, is what describes the predominant philosophy during the Enlightenment. Which was largely we can only see or believe what we, or we we can only believe what we see or feel. So they argue based upon what they see in the natural order of things, and then Job refutes them um, after after each of their arguments as well. And this brings us to the third cycle, which could be described as postmodern, because in this cycle all of their arguments are highly subjective. They're actually all based upon their own personal perceptions. They're not appealing to nature. They're not even appealing so much towards uh, an understanding of God, but they're appealing to what they think is right. And it's actually in this cycle that they become the most vicious and most cutting. Relying on personal perspective is, it does tend to bring out the ugliness that actually lurks in our hearts. And so after all three have each spoken once and been refuted by Job, Job then gives one final speech beginning in chapter 27 through chapter 31. Because his friends continue to accuse him of doing some egregious sin, Job continues to defend himself, even in this last speech. But in response, he actually overemphasizes his integrity. He actually goes too far, to the extent that he actually even assumes that he's not the one that's done wrong. God actually must be the one who needs to be challenged. He doesn't outright say God has done wrong, but he implies it in his own defense of self. True, he's under the wrath and and discipline of God, he says, but 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 he's not as blameless as he might think. And this brings us to God's judgment of Job's trial. You could think of it as God's judgment upon, oops, upon human wisdom. Oops, sorry. God's judgment upon human wisdom. This word, this begins with actually the speeches of Elihu. Um, Elihu rebukes primarily Job, but also his three friends. 
And again, I think Elihu serves as a prophet. Um, it's, he's one whom God speaks through, who receives divine revelation through God, and he gives God's perspective on the situation. And that's why I think Job doesn't refute him, and why immediately after Elihu's speeches, uh, God just more or less springboards off of what Elihu says. In God's direct speech with Job, his conversation with Job, he's really paralleling what Elihu has already said. So I think Elihu is a prophet. And it's finally in chapters 38 through 42 that God does directly speak to Job, largely in the form of questions. And then the book ends, of course, in chapter 42, where Job responds to God's questions simply by humbling himself. He says he repents in dust and ashes and puts his hand over his mouth. Acknowledging his ignorance and his impotence. And then God directs his attention to Job's three friends and he rebukes them because they, he says, you have not spoken of me rightly as my servant Job has. And Elihu, of course, is notably absent from this rebuke. And then God restores Job's fortunes. He actually gives him double everything that he had lost. But remarkably, what's, what's, and I think this is really remarkable, God never answers any of Job's questions that he brings up. Job asks a number of questions uh, when he's being accused and even as he gives his own independent speech. He asks a number of questions that he would like to know from God. And in response, God just asks him questions. God never answers any of Job's questions. Because those answers he saves for the rest of Scripture. And that brings us to the question of what does Job teach us? Well, one of the things it gives a lot of uh, really good information on is that of Satan and angels or angelology. Uh, chapters 1 and 2, if you're ever going to do a study of angels or Satan, chapters 1 and 2 of Job are critical because we get great insight into Satan's methodology and power, his intent. So Job pulls back the screen on spiritual realities that we're blind to and and teaches a a great deal about the nature of spiritual warfare. Consider also that in the beginning, the early chapters, who the main audience is of these trials. Certainly God points out Job to Satan, but God calls Satan into to come amongst the rest of the sons of God, which is another term for angels. The primary audience are angels. And this actually corresponds to what Paul teaches in the book of Ephesians. We read this earlier. He writes in Ephesians 3.8, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, check this, so that the, through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Those rulers and authorities is another term for angels. God is showing angels His great, wise plan and power. And that's exactly what we see in the first few chapters of Job. 
The events that take place upon the earth serve to communicate them to them, his majesty. And so, in a sense, the earth is just a stage, whereas the drama in our lives is getting played out before angels to prove the greatness and majesty of God. In fact, the angelic witness is also referred to in the book of Corinthians and is key to Paul's um, argument on why women should wear a sign of submission. Wives should wear a sign of submission to their husbands. He says it's because of the angels. Because the angels are looking on. And the angels take submission and authority very seriously. And Paul says you don't want to offend them or you don't want to miscommunicate your heart for God. Peter also writes that the truths revealed in Scripture are things into which angels long to look. They want to understand how is all of God's plan going to play out? What's going to be the end goal? They want to know. They want to understand his plan for the ages. It also teaches us about suffering. One of the obvious themes in the book is suffering. And because it's so strong, many people actually, I think, wrongfully assume that that is the theme of the book. That the, the intention of the book is to teach us why good people suffer. Well, one of the reasons I don't think that's the purpose of the book is because we actually never learn why good people suffer. We know they do suffer. Job's a righteous man. He's a godly man. He holds fast to his integrity. But he never learns why he suffers. It's not explained to him. The book actually doesn't answer it. Just assumes that it does happen. And it will happen. And I do think it still gives us insight into why suffering might take place. And how we should respond in the midst of suffering, certainly. But it doesn't answer why, the question of why, ultimately. But it is Job's suffering that does expose the frailty of human wisdom. And I think that is a massive theme within the book. And in fact, the, exposing the frailty of human wisdom is what takes up the majority of the text. Those deliberations uh, with Job where he's accused of committing some sin by his friends and he responds that he doesn't understand what's going on, but he knows he hasn't done anything to deserve what's happening. They don't understand why. Many assume they do, but they're wrong. And, and, that's, and we need to know that. That's why we get the, the, the first two chapters, that as we're reading, we would know that all of Job's brilliant friends are wrong. They don't know as much as they think they know. But these men are brilliant. They're not dummies. If they were alive today, they would be CEOs of corporations. They would be uh, executive leaders in politics, uh, captains of whatever team they're on, presidents of universities. And most likely they were kings and not just men of power, but philosopher kings. The kind of men Plato said was the ideal ruler. They're the, they're the men you want running a country. They're the ones that you would want counsel from. But the point is, despite all of their intelligence, they're wrong. They say many right things, but they're wrong in their conclusion. And it takes three cycles to expose the weakness of their reasoning regarding Job. 
And that's very purposeful because it's it's demonstrated to show us that we need more than just wisdom to get through life. What we need is divine revelation. The only way anyone would know what's going on is if it's divinely revealed to us. We know what's going on because we have the book of Job. But if we didn't have chapter one and chapter two, we would have no clue. And we would probably assume, like the rest of his friends, that Job had done something horrible. And he's just being disciplined for it. So it it exposes the weakness of human wisdom and the need for divine revelation. That's that's a huge part of the book. Fourthly, it, it gives us insight into the sovereignty and wisdom of God. Right? In contrast to human wisdom and its weakness, God's wisdom is, is put on magnificent display. And one of the intimidating things about preaching this book, but also exciting things, is how intricate and clear and crisp and layered this book is. It is incredibly difficult to teach because it is loaded with powerful insight and wisdom that God presents us. It's clear in God's challenge to Satan at the beginning of the book. And then how he brings about good to Job in the end. God knew Job wouldn't fail. And he also knew that Satan um, would, would just be a useful tool to bring about a greater good that even Job would not understand. It's seen in God's response to Job in the final chapters of the multitude of questions he asks. Like one of the point of all those questions is for Job to recognize you don't know anything. You're impotent. You're wanting answers, but who are you to ask questions? Because you don't know the questions to much of what goes on in life. So why do you think you need to know this? Just trust me. I have a purpose and I'll bring that purpose about if you will just trust me, Job. The point of the rhetorical questions is to demonstrate that Job has very little control or understanding of over much at all. And that's just one thing that's good and helpful for us to realize. We, we pride ourselves as men and women of being pretty intelligent. Some of us are remarkably intelligent. But most of us have no idea like why the body functions the way that it does. We know it does. We don't understand why we feel the way we do at times. Why are some people prone to melancholy and other people just giddy and excited all the time? We could say, we could put labels on those sorts of behavior or emotions, but it doesn't explain why. We don't understand why much of what's happened even in history has taken, port, taken place. I used to be a history teacher. Most of history is just interpretation. You can look at facts, but all historians are doing is interpreting facts. They don't know. Because <laughs> there's just not a lot of facts to go off of, especially if you're dealing with ancient history. We don't know as much as we like to think we do. We just assume a lot. And one of God's purposes of Job is just to point that out. But God knows what's going on, and God's going to complete His purpose, and it's good. So this brings up to the next point of, of questions. Job is full of questions. In fact, there's so many questions, I couldn't count them all. It, it, it contains the longest record of God directly speaking of anywhere else in the Bible. Four chapters of God just directly speaking. And it's almost all questions. The questions God asks are largely rhetorical, but the point behind them, again, 
is that there's a great deal that man knows nothing about. And so Job's demand for an answer is just arrogant. It's arrogant. God wants Job to realize that he has no clue about what's going on in the universe. And even if he did, Job, you couldn't do anything about it anyway. Even if I told you what was going wrong, what are you going to do about it? Because you can barely control the things in your own life, let alone Leviathan. We'll get to that later. Job, you need more power. You need more wisdom. Wisdom is good. But you need more than wisdom. The book of Job is largely about unanswered questions. Why does God allow things to happen the way they do? Why is there suffering? And I think really, based on that question, is God actually just? Is is he trustworthy? Is God really righteous? If Job did nothing to suffer, if he didn't deserve, so to speak, to suffer, is is God right in allowing to? It was God right in pointing Job out to Satan. So it brings up this question, is God just? And I think this is actually the grand theme of the book. Much of the book uh, takes the form of a lawsuit or legal disputation. That's why I frame it in terms of trials on, in heaven in the first two chapters and then trials on earth. And then God's judgment based upon these deliberations that take place. Several legal terms are used by Job and his friends and God as well. It's a very legal book. Uh, terms like dispute, which means, means to enter into litigation, answer to testify in court, argue, uh, to present a case convincingly, to judge, one who settles a dispute, innocent, which means to be cleared of charges, summoned, to be called to court, hearing, which is a court proceeding, justice, an impartial hearing, to condemn is to bring a guilty verdict, guilty is one who's tried and condemned, blameless is one who's found to be acquitted, The term arbitrate is used, which means to settle a dispute. I mean, it's loaded with legal language. The point is, this is a trial. This is a trial that's taking place. It it takes place in a courtroom. And a court in the sense of a throne room, God's throne room, but also in the sense of a courtroom, a legal sense. There's a court in heaven, which is the first two chapters. And then a secondary courtroom on earth. And they're inextricably tied together. Moreover, the term righteousness or justice also occurs in the book of Job more than any other book in the Bible. Righteousness or justice occurs in Job more than any other book in the Bible. It's a massive thing including more than the book of Romans. And Romans, as you know, is all about the righteousness of God. It's proving that God is righteous. God is, in fact, just. That's, the, that's, that's Paul's argument in the book of Romans. And I would suggest that Job is also about the righteousness of God. Job poses the questions that the book of Romans actually answers in full. 
And one of the main questions of Job is, again, is God really righteous and trustworthy? Right. How can God be righteous if I'm suffering unjustly for the for wrongs I didn't commit? Well, just consider how Romans answers that question of God's righteousness. It is it is in a way far greater than Job would ever have understood. It's actually through his suffering that Job comes to realize that he has a greater need in life than just justice, than just peace and pleasure and prosperity. He needs more than just to enjoy the blessings of life. In fact, he realizes in his suffering that his greatest need is for a perfectly just mediator between him and God. In his distress, Job cries out actually for three things. Job has three wishes that he articulates in the midst of his suffering. This is his Christmas list. The first wish is found in Job 7.21, where he longs for pardon for his transgression and removal of his iniquity. And speaking to God, he says, why don't you just remove? If I've done something wrong, remove my transgression. Move it from me. God doesn't answer. His second wish is found in chapter 9, verse 32, where he wishes for a mediator between him and God. He, he declares his need for an umpire, one who will intercede between him and God, present his case before God. That he would, he would, because Job can't come before God, he's God. And Job is just a man. He doesn't know what God knows. And he can't even come into God's presence. So he says, I need a mediator. Who could... Because certainly his friends aren't going to help. So Job says, I need somebody who has the understanding, the insight, and the willingness, and the ability to stand between me and God and argue my case before him. And the only possible mediator could be a God-man. And Job's third wish is found in chapter 14, verses 13 to 15, where he longs for a resurrected body. And of course, he remarkably affirms his confidence that God will provide such a resurrected body in Job 19 when he says, most famously, as, I, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at last, he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. And remarkably, that's a, that's a prophecy actually, and remarkably, all three of those longings that Job wishes that he could have are found in Christ. God is helping Job see his need for Christ, which outside of the suffering, he wouldn't have recognized. And in fact, not only is God helping Job see the need for a Savior, he's helping us see our need for a Savior. And in fact, that is one of, maybe not Always, But one of the reasons God brings suffering in our life is to see, to show us that sin has horrific consequences. And the most horrific consequence of sin is not the suffering we'll experience in this life. It's the suffering that comes after death. And unless we have a mediator, unless we have a redeemer, we cannot escape that suffering. Job recognizes his need for these things 
but he failed to recognize even how great his need actually was. In fact, I think if you were in light of the fact this book is a, a book of trials, I think taking the book as a whole, it's not so much Job who's on trial, but God. God is actually putting himself on trial. Testing, or I should say proving he is righteous. He's more righteous than Satan would ever grasp. He's more, he can bring about glorious good through his sovereignty and wisdom that no man could ever fathom. And I believe this is why God actually also pointed Job out to Satan. Right? Why would God, why would God put himself on trial and even drag along Job in the process? Because honestly, God wants to communicate to his creatures that he's in absolute control. He can be trusted. He's good. He wants us to realize that, that the answers to life, life's more, most important questions can't be figured out just through empirical data. Just through internal gazing and philosophizing. We need divine revelation, but most of all, he wants us to recognize our need for a redeemer that no matter how righteous we are, none of us are righteous enough. And in fact, that's why I think God picks on Job, so to speak. Why God points out Job of all people. I mean, why would he pick the most righteous man, the godly, godliest man, arguably besides Christ, maybe the godliest that's ever lived? Why Job? Because if Job can fail, if his righteousness isn't enough, then none of our righteousness is enough. We all need a Savior. If Job isn't good enough, none of us are. All of us need a God-man Redeemer. And this brings us to why was Job written? What is its purpose? Well, as the evidence indicates, if in fact Job was written around 2000 B.C., around the time of the patriarchs, then it actually was, pro- it was the first book of Scripture ever penned. And I think in light of that, Job actually serves as a prologue to the Bible. Job shows us why we need the rest of Scripture. A prologue is a piece of writing that's found at the beginning of a book before the first chapter, separate from the main story, and it introduces important details. Foreshadowing of events to come, background details. So think of The Hobbit um, in light of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The story of Job demonstrates that we need more for the answers that we have, for the questions that we have that need answers. In particular, we need divine revelation. Job leaves many unanswered questions, which the rest of Scripture will make clear. It also demonstrates the need for a mediator between God and men. Not just a mediator, but a redeemer as well. And Job declares he has hope that there will be such a one, but 
the identity of that Redeemer isn't clear until we get the rest of Scripture. It also shows the frailty of human wisdom and our lack of perfect righteousness. Right? Job provides insight into spiritual realities that we're just blind to. To state this purpose more succinctly, Job introduces the need for further divine revelation by exposing man's need for wisdom and righteousness in contrast to God's perfect wisdom and righteousness. Our great need, in other words, is something only God can provide. Job teaches us that we are absolutely in need of God. That we are insufficient in and of ourselves. And so as we face the storms of life, and as we wrestle in these storms with the questions that many of us will never have answered, why God allows such and such to happen in life. All right, we need to avoid speculating and instead cling to what He has revealed. We shouldn't lean on our own wisdom and understanding, but lean instead upon His Word. I close with Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who stands not in the counsel of the wicked, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, nor stands in the way of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree that is planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not weather. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Father, we want to be men and women of Psalm 1. We want to be men and women who are like Job, but like Job with the full authority of the Scripture that we can lean upon. Lord, we know that You will test us. Maybe in the, in the days, weeks, months ahead. And Lord, we want to not... We want to pass those tests. And not just pass them, but we want, we want to exalt You. We want, we want to show that You really are our greatest treasure. And Lord, for that, we need more than just learning. We need more than just studying Job. We need your grace. We need you to work in power through your word, through prayer, through the ministry of one another to strengthen us to be oaks or cedars of great faith so that you will receive the praise and honor that you're due. And people will come to know you even through our witness in the midst of suffering. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.